And we'll be looking at page 14, the chart on page 14, and then the passages on page 15 in just a bit. Let me remind you of some things that are coming up this Saturday afternoon, 1.30 to 3, is family ice skating at the Brownstown Sports Center, $3 to rent skates. The skating itself is free. We have today and next week remaining in this series from self-help to God's help. And then on the 24th, so two weeks from today, we will start a four-week series. I will have our periodic four-week series called our Newcomers Orientation. So for those of you that are new to our church, we offer this orientation for four weeks, three times a year to explain who we are and what we believe, why we do things the way we do what we hope to accomplish in the future. It's to help you make a decision about a church home. If you've never taken that, then I would encourage you, strongly urge you to take that. I'll be leading that. We'll go through a booklet of material. It's for informational purposes only. It doesn't obligate you to join the church or any of that. And we don't hassle you after that. Now, with one caveat, uh, if after you've taken that, you remain here for, say, a year and you still don't make a decision, then we're, we're going to start coming after you. And uh, and saying, hey, is this the place for you? And if this isn't the place for you, then in, in all seriousness, then help us to find a, a place for you. So the whole idea is for you to evaluate uh, where God wants you. We try to offer you that information to help you with that. So I encourage you to take the newcomer's orientation that starts in two weeks. And then for those four weeks while I'm doing that, we have Membership 101 going on. That's for those who have joined the church uh, since we had our last uh, orientation and Membership 101. Those of you that have joined will receive a direct invitation to that. Everybody else will be in here and will be taught for those four weeks by men from our church. And then we'll have Easter on April the 21st. And then on April the 28th, we will start a new series in here for which we'll be sending out mailers to the community like we did for, for this series. And that one's titled, You Mean the Bible Teaches That? And it's going to, over several weeks, go through ethical issues and what the Bible teaches about those. So we'll be covering uh, issues like abortion and uh, homosexuality and capital punishment and those kinds of things so that we can uh, give you God's perspective on on those issues. And it's something to which you can invite your friends. Perhaps you've uh, gotten questions from friends and coworkers about that. So we've tried to offer that to, to help you and then to help you help them. Then on the 31st, three weeks from tonight, is our next baptism at uh, 5 o'clock. You need to fill out a one-page baptism application. You need to do that very soon so that we can uh, talk to you about uh, being baptized. But if you have never been immersed in water to symbolize the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ, that's something that Christ commands of his followers. So if you've been baptized in some other form, you've not been baptized the way the Bible describes. And so that's something you need to do in order to be in obedience to Jesus. And uh, we would love to help you with that. But it starts by filling out that application. You can pick that up at the desk that's out in the lobby. You can turn that into them and then we will will go from there. All right. We are in our series from self-help to to God's help. And the chart that's on page 14 is a chart that we have been looking at Throughout the the series, I'll quickly review that, and then we are now down at the bottom of the chart. But at the top, you see uh, the heat portion. What is your situation? And the chart likens our lives to a journey in the the a wilderness. Uh, it's complete with heat. It's complete with with ground that uh, can be there. 
either be hard or at times uh, fertilized. Uh, but we are we are on that journey. And everyone in that journey has their own particular heat, the heat of life, the circumstances, the situations in which God has, has placed us. And depending on how we respond to those circumstances is going to determine whether or not our experience of those is going to be one of joy or is going to make a bad situation worse. The heat of life often includes difficult circumstances Trials, things that are not to our liking simply because we are in a fallen, a fallen world. So the response, depending on our response, it can create on the right side of the chart a thorn bush kind of life. And there are all kinds of consequences then that uh, come out of that that we have, have seen together. But notice the root of that fruit, of that bad fruit. Down at the bottom you see the negative heart that gives rise to that. So the heart I bring to my situation, the heart I bring to the heat that God has placed in my life is going to determine the kinds of consequences that are going to result from that. A godly response, in contrast to an ungodly response, ones that that resists, ones that is uh, resentful, one that is depressed, one that is angry because the heat of my life, the situation in my life is not as I would like. In contrast to that, a godly response waters the parched ground of our lives and the lives of other people. And so that's on the left side of the page. And it gives rise to to a fruit tree kind of life. And you see a heart, a positive heart, a godly heart that gives rise to that. Now, as I noted last week, it doesn't. The response does not change the situation, but it changes our experience of the situation. The heat's still the same. But you can have two people who experience the same heat completely differently. I mean, just think about, just think about people in traffic and a traffic jam. And think about how many different ways a traffic jam can be experienced. There's some heat. <clears throat> And you've got the person who's laying on the horn and bobbing the head because of the person in front of them. Believe me, I experienced the heat of traffic this past week because I was in Los Angeles. <laughs> Yikes. I mean, the lines, you know, the lines on the road are apparently suggestions. <laughs> and and people just get, I, just get irate. And I'm glad I had a, a rental vehicle that had a California plate on it. My goodness, it said Michigan on it. Who knows what it would happen to happened to me. But you know, you got people who are just irate and they're angry and you see them in the rearview mirror and the head's bobbing and they're just tense and all of that's going on. And then, you know, you might see somebody else next to you as we're on our way to the, the conference and there's a woman, you know, she's just putting her makeup on. And she's just happy to have more time to get dressed <laughs> to, to go to work. You know, or maybe it's, you know, a carpool of kids that are going to school and the kids, how are they experiencing? Well, they're on their way to school. I hope this thing lasts forever. That's the most fun I've had in my life. But you see it's the same situation. And how you experience the situation depends on the, the heart, that heart full of expectations, full of values, full of desires, full of wants, that all easily morph, that all easily change into idolatrous wants and desires. It's a good thing to want to be able to get to work on time. 
It's a good thing to want to uh, have traffic to flow uh, in an orderly fashion and for people to obey the traffic laws and all. It's all, a, it's all a good thing. But remember what we said a few weeks ago. A good thing uh, can, when it becomes an ultimate thing, becomes a sinful thing, an idolatrous thing. And I know it's become ultimate to me when I'm willing to sin in order to get it or I'm willing to sin in the absence of, of, of having it. And so the response is everything. The response may not change the heat, but it will change radically your experience of the situation. Okay, pastor, all that being true, I buy all of that, I believe all of that. The question is, can I do any of that? And last week we began to look at the resources that God has made available to us in order for us to actually be able to respond to the heat of life in a godly fashion. So that the heart that is at the root of either the thornbush life or the fruit tree life can indeed be the right kind of heart that I bring to my circumstances. And so today we're going to continue looking at those resources that God has, that God has given us. We saw last week that we have real potential to do this. We have the real potency, that is. We have the real power to do this because When we come to Christ, we're given His Holy Spirit, and therefore we have the power to respond, to respond properly to our, to our situations. We have the power and we have a new identity that's been given to us. On page 15 in your notes, the first passage that we have listed there to remind us of this new identity that we've been given, is the famous 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation, a new creature. The old is gone, the new has, has come. The old order of things has, has passed away. So we have this radically new identity. And understanding what we saw last week, that we have the power of the Holy Spirit, and that we have this new identity are crucial in order for us to be able to respond to the heat of life properly. Here's why. Everyone lives out of a sense of identity. Everyone lives out of a sense of identity. Sometimes when uh, I meet people, uh, I ask them about themselves, uh, they will begin to give me demographic kinds of things about themselves. You have the same thing. So tell me about yourself, and tell me about yourself means here's the situation I'm in. Uh, I'm married with children. You know, I work at such and such. That's the way we that's the way we normally go about it, and that's all that's all fine. When someone's experienced negative heat in their life, the way they describe it, and very often the very first thing they say to me is, uh, "I'm recently divorced," or. Um, I'm an alcoholic, or I lost my job, or I recently had a diagnosis. This is all the heat of life. This is all this negative stuff. But here's what's important about leading with things like that. What's happened is very often that circumstance has become the identity of the individual. So in the mind of that person and in the way that person's life is being lived out, I am a divorced person. That's my life. It's the most dominant and important thing in my life. I'm divorced. 
or I am an alcoholic is the most important and dominant feature about my life. And in fact, if they go to AA meetings, and I'm, I'm personally not against 12 steps that, that can help you, if you, especially though if you understand that the higher power is not just this nebulous thing, but actually has a name, uh, the name of the Lord Jesus. But, you know, if you go through the 12 steps, you will be told regularly that I am an alcoholic. I will always be an alcoholic, right? Isn't that what you're... Well, okay. I mean, I understand why that's said. The most dominant thing may be I lost my job or I lost my health. What's the right way to think about that? Those things. The right way to think about it is, wait, first off is never, I'm divorced, I'm an alcoholic, I lost my job, I just had a bad health diagnosis. That's never the thing that dominates your life. Never. The thing that dominates your identity is, I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God who's divorced. I'm a child of God who struggles with alcohol. I'm a child of God who's unemployed. I'm a child of God who had four stents put in in the last in the last month. Or whatever. But all the while, the thing that I've got to lead with is I'm a child of God. And if I experience the heat of life as a child of God, it will radically alter the way I respond to that heat. But if you take that heat on, if you take that circumstance, that situation on as your identity, now it means you are going to, you are going to experience that in a negative way. It's going to be that thing that hangs over you all the time and defines what you're about and defines how you talk and defines the joy, yea, the lack of joy that you have in your, in your life. So friends, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to do this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12, 2 Corinthians 2.12, tells us that the Holy Spirit helps us to understand all that we have been freely given in Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.12, the Holy Spirit helps us to understand all that we have been freely given in Christ. So when we talked last week about having the, the, the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit so that we are able to respond differently, Part of what the Holy Spirit does is, 2 Corinthians 2.12, to help us understand all that it is that we have in, in Christ. The Holy Spirit helps us to see Jesus and to see ourselves in Jesus. What we have and who we are. The Holy Spirit helps us to see Jesus and it help, he helps us to see what we have it in, in Jesus. See Jesus to see ourselves, what we have in Him, and who we, and who we are in, in Him. So, what are some of those things that, uh, that happen in life that morph into idols of the heart very easily that if I remember who I am, and I remember the power of the Holy Spirit that I have available to me, I can respond differently to. So here's an example. You say it's a, 
a father and a husband. You're coming home from work. You've had a rough day at work. You're tired. And all the way home from work, you're, you're thinking to yourself about your easy chair. You're thinking about your, your lazy boy. And you're thinking about a tall, ice-cold Diet Coke or whatever is your favorite thing, non-alcoholic. Okay? <laughs> And you, you, you can just picture it. You can just picture kicking up your feet. You can picture being in the chair. You can picture the, the, the refreshing drink. And you need it. i got to have this. I deserve this. I mean, so it's, it's got to happen. You're looking forward to it happening. But then reality hits you when you open the door at home. The kids come running up to you. And the kids don't come running up to you to give you a hug. The kids come running up to you with a number of complaints about what's happened. They're complaining actually about each other because they've been fighting. So that's why, you know, Bill Cosby said years ago, if you're a parent of one child, you're not really a parent. (laughs) Because you always know who did it. But if you've got more than one, well, okay, now I've got to figure this out, right? And so they come, and it's, hey, he's sad, and they're crying, and that's the first thing you get. And because you've got, they're in the way of the easy chair. Where's the easy chair? Where's the Diet Coke? It's these guys. And so I start barking out orders. Look, you play with a toy for 30 minutes, then you play with a toy for 30 minutes, and I don't want to hear any more out of you. All right, settled that. We got them working. But then your wife comes. <laughs> and she's telling you what a hard day it's been for her and all of that. And the whole time you're thinking, really, how hard can it be? Right? And so, you know, you bark something out to her. And she may have some choice words for you. And, and here, we, here we go. You see what's happening? This is all coming from the heart. This is all coming from a desire for a good thing that has morphed into an ultimate thing which has now become an idolatrous thing. And it plays out in our lives all the time, doesn't it? Now, how can I react differently to that? Well, we need to, we need to remember what's most important. We may need to remember That that heat is not what's most important. The cross causes me to remember what's most important because in the cross I see God himself showing me what's most important and it ain't my easy chair and comfort. It's the good of others and I have now this identity in Christ and this power of the Holy Spirit so that I can actually I can actually do this. And we're going to talk about some of those things I have in Christ that enable us to do that in in just a bit. But I recommend to you, as I recommend to myself, that you regularly remind yourself of who you are in Christ. And remind yourself then, in reminding yourself of who you are in Christ, you're reminding yourself of Christ. And you're reminding yourself of, of His cross. And you're reminding yourself of how He went through life and how it is that I'm called to model the way he went through through life. And if you go through your New Testament and you just highlight the things that the Bible says you are in Christ, you 
if you can come away from making that list with anything except rejoicing, then there's, there's something severely wrong with our hearts. It may be that we're unregenerate, honestly. Now, I have a list of things that the Bible says we are in Christ. And we have that list on the information center desk. And after we are done, you can go pick up a copy of that. Now, some of you are laughing. Because you know, a couple of weeks ago, I said I had a different list. And those are out there. And then you went out there, and they weren't there. And so you came back to me, and you said, Pastor, you are a big, fat liar. Not quite. But I know they're out there because I physically delivered them to the desk. So they're one-page list of things that the Bible says that we are in Christ. And so I, I strongly urge you to take that. I use it in counseling regularly. And I encourage counselees, as I encourage you, to regularly go over these things that we are in Christ. The Holy Spirit enables us to see Jesus and ourselves in Jesus, what we have and and who we are. And so I'd like to spend our remaining time to remind us about some of the things that we are in and have in Christ that can change then the reactions that we have to the heat of life. Those reactions will be filtered through Christ and through his, his cross. The first one is this, that we are justified, that we are justified. And that's why on page 15, we have listed for you there 1 John chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. 1 John 2 and verses 1 and 2. My dear children, I write this. So that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of of the whole world. So in verse one, you see that indeed Christians continue to struggle with sin. And John then refers to us as his children in the faith. So he's writing to Christians that he longs to see progress in their holiness, but sin is still a reality. But verse 1 goes on to say that Jesus is our defense lawyer. He's our advocate. When we sin, Jesus speaks to the Father on our behalf. He defends us, saying that we should not be punished for our sins because he already atoned. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so, Father, you would be exacting judgment twice for the same sin from him and from me, in effect. 1 John 1, 9, that Dr. Combs preached on a few weeks ago, says when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and restore that familial uh, relationship that we have with God. But we always have the forensic action of Christ on the cross and, as I'm going to talk about in his life as well, giving this, this full justification. So we have the forgiveness of sins that come to us because Christ has died on the cross. But we also not only have the forgiveness of the penalty for our sins because of Christ's work on the cross, but we also have the perfect righteousness of Christ because of the life he lived that gave rise to that cross. When folks join our church, uh, as I've told you, uh, we asked two questions uh, right at the beginning of the membership application. 
who do you believe Jesus is? And most of the time people say something like he's the son of God, and that's a good answer. Uh, and then the second question is, what do you believe Jesus has done for us? And almost without exception, folks will say he died on the cross for us. And again, that's a very good answer. So those of you that have, have yet to fill out the membership application, I'm stepping you through it now, okay? So you can say he died on the cross, and that would be a good answer. But when we meet, I always go over those two questions. And when someone says son of God, I always make sure that they understand he is fully God. Son of God does not mean less than God. He is God the son. But then for that second question, what do you believe Jesus has done for us? Yes, he died for us on the cross, but that is not the completion of our our salvation. He died for us on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. But if all you have and all I have is the penalty paid, we still don't get to heaven. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. So just having your penalty paid just brings you back to sort of zero, ground zero, neutral. You have to have positive righteousness in order to go to heaven. In fact, you have to have holiness. Without holiness, no one will see God, the Bible says. So where am I going to get this perfect righteousness? My theology professor in seminary used to ask a sort of quick trick question. He would say, do you have to be good to go to heaven? And we would all you know, answer no immediately because we know none of us are good and yet we've been promised heaven in Christ. So we would answer no and he would kind of do, ah, gotcha. Because not only do you have to be good, he would say you have to be perfect. But then he's setting us up for where do I get this perfection? And the place from which I get this perfection is in the life that Jesus lived. That, in fact, made the death acceptable to God the Father. It was the life he lived of perfect righteousness that, here's an old King James term, is imputed to us, is counted to us when we come to to Christ. And so, when we come to Christ, when we are saved, we get the perfect life of Christ given to us and we get his death on the cross given to us, both of those. His perfect life and the penalty paid. Thanks be to God. So how can someone who has once been given that ever fail to go to heaven? The answer is they cannot. All sins have been paid for. And we've been given the perfect righteousness of Christ. And when we talk about being justified, it goes beyond what many of us learned in Sunday school As a mnemonic, a way to remember that, justified as just as if I'd never sinned. That's that's helpful. But even goes beyond that. It's not just I, I didn't sin and I'm back to ground zero and this neutrality, but I have the perfect righteousness of Christ. I used to ask the young people that I would teach as a youth leader, why do you think Christ um lived to thirty three, approximately thirty three? Before he died on the cross. And people are usually puzzled when we when I ask that. Because if your mindset is he only came to die, then and I don't mean this in a flippant or sacrilegious way, but why not just get it over with? If all he's coming to do is die, why not die at six or five or something? Well, it's because he didn't just come to die. He came to live. 
So it is proper to say Jesus died for me. But hear this, friends. It is also proper and right, and you must remember that Jesus lived for me as well. It's because Jesus lived for us that his death was acceptable to God the Father. And you see that very structure in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Many of you know that passage. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he were equal with God, did not consider that equality something to be held on to, something to be grasped. Then it goes on to talk about how he made himself nothing, taking the the form of a servant. And he became obedient unto death. And then it says, even to death on the cross. So he was obedient in his life, obedient all the way to death, and even this kind of death, a cross death. That was his life, his obedient life. And because he had this obedient life, and then in obedience gave himself his life up on the cross in obedience to the Father, therefore, verse 9, God has exalted him to the highest place. And so the resurrection is the approval of God the Father upon the entirety of the de- life and death of the Lord Jesus. And dear friends, when you came to Christ, you got all of that. Can you imagine? The life and the death of Jesus. So now my life needs to be seen through that. That's my identity. And everything else is secondary and tertiary. Everything else is way down the list to being found in Christ. And when I think that way then, with the power of the Holy Spirit, now these things, that small things that grip my heart and become idolatrous to me can now be overcome because I have all of this treasure in Christ. First, I'm justified. Second, you're adopted. You're justified and you're adopted. First John chapter 2 tells us about Christ as our advocate and our atoning sacrifice. But then 1 John chapter 3, which we have for you on page 15, tells us about our adoption. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is it did not know him. Dear friends, we are now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. You see in verse 3 there, everyone who has this hope in him, that that the teaching in verses 1 and 2 should have a shaping influence on the life of the one who possesses it and professes it. Well, what's being taught in verses 1 and 2? That we are the children, the children of God. Verse 1 delights in the fact that we have this radical new relationship with God. Because we've been justified, we're now welcomed into God's presence and His family. God's no longer our judge. He's now our Father. Now, though it's not evident in the NIV and in most translations, verse 1 begins with the word behold. Behold what manner of love. I'm going back to my... King James, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. But it starts with, behold. And it's saying this, stop and think about this. Don't miss this incredible truth. Behold, 
What God has lavished upon us. And then the phrase, how great, literally means this, from what country? (laughs) A modern interpretation would be, from what planet? The Father's love is so immense that it's hard to conceive of where it could originate, except in God himself. I mean, it's just kind of mind-blowing. Think about this. Behold, how great, how stupendous, how otherworldly, how mind-blowing it is. The love that God has lavished upon us. And then when John says this, he says that we should be called the children of God. And then it's almost like as he's writing it, he thinks to himself, I I can't believe what I just wrote. And so he writes it again. And that is what we are. Can you believe it? That we're the children of God? This is a quick but important aside. Friends, I don't think we will appreciate this the way John did, the way we are supposed to, unless and until we understand how far it is the Father's love has brought us. Unless we understand the debt that we owed that Brother Tim talked about in the first hour. But man, if I understand that, if I understand that I was gone, I was hopeless. And it's only the love of God lavished upon me, undeserved by me, that now has placed me in this, in this uh, status before him as his adopted son or daughter. Only when I recognize the debt I could not pay will I appreciate all that God has done. Verses 2 and 3 go on to say that this amazing love of the Father compels us to live for him. When we rightly understand it, God's love propels us toward holiness and growth and grace. And so the order of all of this is important, friends. I'm a new creation. I've been accepted. I've been adopted. Therefore, I want to please God. We don't say I'll try to please God so that I become a new creation or make myself acceptable. Rather, because all of those things are true, it motivates me to do these things. And so the cross... And Christ and what he accomplished caused me to remember who I am, my justification, my adoption. So that when I allow things and people to become more important than what I've been given in Christ, I do what the Bible says, I repent. So this is the next thing that the cross does so that we go up the left side of that chart. So that we have lives that are fruit trees rather than thorn bushes. We turn from sin. We turn from allowing these lesser persons and lesser things to dominate our hearts. Now in our remaining time, I want to talk about what repentance is. And I want us to see it from the parable of the prodigal. Repentance from the parable of the prodigal. In Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11, I don't have that listed. It was too long to put on your page. But I'll I'll read this familiar parable to you. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. 
He set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to the father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, the fatted calf. Kill it for food. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again, was lost and is now found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. There is a ton in that parable. A ton. Uh, I'm going to focus on the younger son's repentance, but there's the older son's Anger. I heard a story some years ago about a Sunday school teacher who was teaching that. Said to the kids in the Sunday school, now when uh, they had this party, who was angry? And one of the little kids said, "Uh, the fatted calf. (laughs) 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 He was a little ticked, I'm sure. So there's a ton here, okay? And one piece of it is the anger of the the older son. And, and Jesus is making a point about his own people, and I've come to my, to my own, to my own people. But in their pride, they have not received. They have not received me. And so, in your pride, you will be you will be left out. And he refused to join the celebration. He refused to join the party. But in the life of this young man, we see ingredients of what turning from hearts that are bound by comfort by desires that are less than than Christ and Christ's likeness, what this repentance looks like. Let me give you three ingredients that we see in that parable about what repentance looks like. The first thing that the son did was wake up. So there he is out in the out in the field and he starts thinking about who he is and wait a minute, I'm I'm the son of the father. And I my father has servants that all have everything they need, and I'm his son. What am I doing here? Wake up. Verse 17 says he came to his senses. Describing him, his, his, waking, his waking up. Second thing he did, he not only woke up, he owned up. He woke up and he owned up. He admitted 
his sin. I will say to my father, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. I'm not even worthy to be one of your servants. And so he had godly sorrow, not worldly sorrow. The prodigal son saw that his sin was against his father. That's godly sorrow as opposed to worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is only sorry that you were caught or that you failed to live up to your own standards or potential or that you were experiencing the consequences of your sin. It's self-centered, but godly sorrow focuses on how God was offended and how others were hurt. And we have for you on page 15, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So he woke up, he owned up, and then thirdly, he shifted the weight. That is, he shifted the weight from his his own guilt to receiving the embrace of the father. In verse 20, the father ran out to embrace him. That in itself is is a detail that's interesting. The father saw him from afar off. He didn't wait for the son to come and grovel. He ran out to meet him. He embraced this dirty son who's been living as he has, but the father embraces him. So he shifted the weight from his own guilt to to the forgiveness that the father father offers. So, how can you and I put that into practice so that we repent of the idols of the heart for good things that morph into ultimate things and thereby become idolatrous things. Here's one way to do that. First, here's a, here's a couple of suggestions. Realize that your biggest problem is you. It's not your circumstances. Realize the biggest problem is you, not your circumstances, and you have everything you need in Christ to live in ways that please Him. Second, notice that comfort or whatever your idol is, is something that we tend to worship above the Lord. When I'm willing to sin to get it or to sin in the absence of having it, then I am worshiping it, elevating it above the Lord. So here's one way to put that into practice. Philippians chapter 2 that I alluded to earlier. Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. Those verses highlight what Christ did when he left heaven to suffer and die and be raised for us. So here is what your battle with dad, husband, coming home wanting the comfort of the the refreshing drink and the, the lazy boy. This is how... Christ's life, as described in Philippians chapter 2, should affect that. You should say things like this, comfort, this idol that I'm after. You look beautiful to me right now, but when did you ever leave your place of prominence and glory to humble yourself for me? (laughs) It's only Christ who did that. Comfort, when did you ever enter my world to suffer on my behalf? Comfort, when did you ever shed your blood so that I could be cleansed from my sin? When were you ever raised from the dead on my behalf? When did you ever promise to give me new life and power? When did you ever promise to send the Holy Spirit to fill me with true comfort that would help me to please God even when my earthly comfort was threatened? When did you ever promise to intercede for me to my Father in heaven so that I could be strong in trial? When did you ever promise to come again and redeem me from things that capture me and make me their slave? You see, friends, we've got to regularly remind ourselves of who he is 
and whose we are in him. And when we do then do that, then, as the old hymn says, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. To summarize it, and then we're done. In every aspect of life, when I find myself sinning, when I find myself responding to the heat of life in a thornbush way rather than a godly fruit kind of way, in every circumstance like that, I need to reorient myself in a vertical fashion. I need to reorient myself to say, okay, where does God, where does Christ, where does the cross fit into this? Remind myself of who he is. Remind myself of who I am in him. And when I do that, then these idols that have, these good things that have morphed into idols will then fade away and my heart is transformed so that godly fruit is produced. Next week in our final session together, we're going to see more about that godly fruit that's produced from that kind of heart. All right? Let's pray and ask God to help us to implement these things this week. Father, we thank you for the amazing truths that we've been reminded of in both hours today. I thank you for sending our brother to expound on this parable of your forgiveness to us and the practical import of that for our lives. Lord, help me to remember that this afternoon, this week, all the time. The amazing, stupendous, infinite forgiveness that I have been given in the Lord Jesus Christ and how that ought to impact the way I live. And likewise, Lord, in not only in forgiving and having been forgiven and therefore being a forgiving person, but in every aspect of life, help me help us to appropriate the blessings of the life and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see every idol that challenges for the allegiance of our hearts. Help us to see that for what it is. It's in competition for the love for which Christ died for us. It was his love for us that compelled him to die. And it is love for him that should be the return on what he has done for us. Lord, help us then to repent. Help us to turn from these things. Seeing them for what they are. Waking up and and owning up and shifting the guilt to, to Christ and then, and then moving on. Lord, help us to move on when we remember that we're justified, that we're adopted, that we belong to you, that this status is given to us. And so we are not our circumstances. We are always who we are in the Lord Jesus. Help us to remember that this week. Help us to practice that this week. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.